Hello, Dr. Lisa Miller. It's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. It's called uh, Fuck Your Feelings, Do the Next Right Thing, uh, Spirituality in uh, Practice. And uh, um, so I, I, first of all, I want to tell you that I am, um, I'm not done with the book, but I have, I've read it over half of it. And um, to say it's amazing would be an understatement. And Dr. Well, Miller has... Mark, thank you. But can I start by saying how very grateful I am to share in your podcast, and I want to celebrate that you, Rabbi Mark, and Harriet have been treasured colleagues and friends for over six years now. It's been six years that you've come and taught yeah. our students at Columbia University, that you've helped train our clinical psychologists in a deeper way of working through bringing them right into your treatment site. So you've been a very important colleague and visiting scholar for us at Columbia University Spirituality Mind Body Institute. And I want to start by thanking you and saying what an honor it is to be invited to join you here. Well, thank you, because it's an honor for us. Harriet's reading the book, and, and she wanted me to tell you that it is absolutely amazing. You have put into words everything that we have been uh, uh, putting into practice, and, and you validated. You certainly your have. Book validates, your book validates all of the, the treatment modalities that Beit Shuba has been about. So thank you. Well, the lives and, you've saved at Beit Shuba, the lives you've saved. Well, thank you. So I guess the first question is, what really drove you to this, to this search for spirituality in, in um, not just in psychology, but in life? What, what's the, what was the driving force for you? So, Rabbi, like every child, I was a very spiritually present child. I could like every child, sort of feel that exciting numinousness in life and almost really at times truly see it in my mind's eye, you know, um, and prayed and loved to go to synagogue like every child. I just felt God's presence for the transcendent, the higher power, whatever spirit word one might use. And I couldn't wait to go to school and start learning about this as a young child uh, so I waited patiently and <laughs> kindergarten, first grade, you know, not much talk about it. Um, and while I always remained spiritually connected, I really didn't hear many people talk about spiritual life or their inner experience or their transcendent moments or dreams or mystical, any of that for a very, very long time, except for my mother. My mother is an observant Jew. She kept Shabbat. She would cry as she lit the candles. She'd pray out loud with joy for, for her children. She loved Shabbat. It was so special to her. And I remember as a child sitting by her side in synagogue, and she would lean over on the important prayers and sing in Hebrew with this warm smile right up close in my face. And that is how I learned to say the Hebrew prayers was because my mother, who I so adore, taught me, and I was by her side. So I would say that I have my mother to thank for so much of my uh, feeling of connection through Judaism and my identification as a Jew, but also my deep spiritual heart was held and formed in the way that she loved and felt sacred presence every day. That was my childhood. 
So when I landed in the field of clinical psychology and there was not a whisper of spiritual life, I mean, not even, except occasionally I heard that it was a so-called Freudian defense, some of my training sites or, you know, it it just didn't make sense to me because the world looked about 90% absent without a spiritual opening. Um, So that's really why I went into this direction in mental health, um, because of really the way my mother raised me to hold on to my natural innate capacity for spiritual life, like every child has. Um, Where the rubber hit the road was when I was an intern, shortly after I finished my doctorate, I was on an inpatient unit in New York City. And it's so moving, Rabbi, that you had me this week, because where I felt the greatest conviction in the start of my career to make this my life's work um, happened around the time of Yom Kippur. I was on an inpatient unit. It was the high holidays. We were at a community meeting with all of the clients, all of the patients, and sitting there you know, in a very sort of anxious, vaguely sort of paranoid, um, really the air did not feel comfortable. So I could only imagine how people dealing with deep struggle might have felt in that moment. Someone said, well, it's the Jewish holidays. And there were a number of Jews on this unit. It was in New York. What, what we'll be doing for the holidays? Is, the, is there a rabbi coming in? When will the service be? And the answer was sort of an apologetic from the unit head. Well, there, there is no service planned. And the despair that I saw in some of the depressed patients' face and in one of the more externalizing bipolar, the sort of anger as he started thumping his foot, it said to me that, you know what, the clients are right. The patients are right. People are suffering. It's the holiest day of the Jewish year. There should be a service. So unqualified as I was, you're a rabbi, I was only a psychologist, I thought, well, maybe I can't lead, I can't conduct a Yom Kippur service, but I could support and facilitate one. And so I took my grandmother's prayer book, and I went to the unit on Yom Kippur with the approval of the unit head, and we together held a Yom Kippur service on the inpatient unit. Now, the inpatient unit had no bima. We cleared a space in the back kitchen of the inpatient unit. Really look, could not look more like a ward kitchen. It had a linoleum table. There were pots and pans. It, was, it smelled of some very intensive cleanser. But when I showed up that day, the patients who day in and day out looked so anxious and who you know, held their bodies in tight, closed positions because to protect themselves. And one fellow who was very explosive, people really suffering had showed up with great poise and a sense of specialness that today was Yom Kippur. And it was a break from the ordinary, everything we've ever learned as Jews. This was a special day, a day of forgiveness and renewal and atonement. And rather than wear these really degrading hospital robes, I mean, why on earth do we have people on, you know, in units for mental health concerns, dressed in these paper, horrible little gowns. They were dressed in their beautiful best clothes that they had available. And one person had even had her parents drop off a beautiful dress. They sat upright. We began to pray. And thank goodness they were all quite knowledgeable because I was, again, the facilitator. And we started moving through the the prayers of, of Yom Kippur. And very, very quickly, there was a rhythm set up between us. And the fellow who was a very explosive fellow in a manic state held our group in a warm, rhythmic 
safe, stable cadence. And he started singing the prayers and in a, in a very moving way, swaying. And he was anything but explosive. And the woman who had been so full of guilt and shame sat up in our moment of discussion and said, you know, I'd always realized that on Yom Kippur, we could ask for forgiveness. But today here with you all, I realize that we can be forgiven. This woman so racked with guilt and shame and depression. So I saw this flourishing, this dignity. The light went on, the power upped, power went up. And I could see that there was a transformation happening in an hour and a half that hadn't happened in weeks or months for these patients. And it was because we'd opened the door and let in spirit. God was in the room. They had opened up their capacity for spiritual connection through for them in their path, the paved highways of, you know, of, of Judaism connecting to their deep inner core. They had let in God's presence. They had really illuminated. And I figured from that day forward that a mental health minus spirituality simply made no sense. And I was going to give the rest of my career to this. So in the book, um, you talk about this Olympian state. I made highlights, and so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it so people know. Um, you call it a wide, unfettered, integrated view of the world rolling out in all directions. How does one achieve that? So, Rabbi, I'm so grateful that you highlight this seat of our awareness. We are hardwired for this. We are built to be able to be in an Olympian state. It may not be every moment of every day. And, in fact, there's other forms of awareness that we need to flourish and connect and love and live and work. But the capacity to have a clear, really mountaintop view of life as illuminated, as clear, as numinous. This we are all built to experience. This is not for the most pious or the most devout. We all, this is our birthright. And we actually know that through twin studies. We look at twin studies and see that our capacity for deep spiritual awareness is heritable. It is in our foundational day one wiring as little babies that we are born to be able to have transcendent awareness, an Olympian state. We can get there in many ways, prayer, reading sacred text, who we are to one another, if you will, um, torchbearers, or even in a minion that we conduct sacred presence for one another, relational spirituality. Rabbi, you will not be surprised, given your work, to hear that of all the dimensions of spiritual life that correlate with what I call the awakened brain, the neural correlates of this spiritual awareness, the one that most ignites and strengthens our awakened brain is love of neighbor and service to Kunalam. When we are altruistic, we feel God's presence in and through one another, and we awaken to the deeper nature of life. Right. So would you say that, that what happened for the, um, the people on that ward uh, unit, however you want to call it, was this, in that moment, they got that Olympian state and the depression and uh, anxiety and everything 
fell away because they could see larger than the narrow view they've been given? Yes, beautifully put. And because it all fell away, the cage that had contained their spirit just collapsed, right? Their spirit shone bright. And what struck me so was as they were whole again, as they were reintegrated and whole again with a shining, strong spirit, they all showed a radiance in exactly the equal and opposite direction of their symptoms. So the shameful woman had a natural confidence and the explosive man contained our group. There was a sense in which whatever their limitations or so-called symptoms had been were so far superseded that their strong card for the group, their contribution to our prayer circle was completely antithetical. It way outshined what they had suffered and struggled to overcome. Wow. That sounds like, I mean, you must have walked out of there just floating. Floating. And, you know, the very next day, I got a little knock at my office door, and it was the woman, full of shame, who still felt the renewal, felt the enlargement, the presence of her natural birthright, of her spirit. She knocked at the door and said, Dr. Miller, Dr. Miller, I just wanted you to know that you can be forgiven, too. She gave me the greatest jewel she had. She had discovered she could be forgiven, and she wanted to make sure that I was gifted with that awareness. That's love. That's relational spirituality. And no, that is not isolation and depression. Right. So I I guess the question is, uh, um, before I go on to it, I'm sure we'll cover these other things, but... um, how does that then get supported? How do we continue it? How do we as a family member? Because I think family members also uh, um, detract from that uh, um, experience because it's not scientific, which you have now proven it is, which is great. But, I mean, how, how do we as as family members, as community, as is a people support this kind of, of um, renaissance of spirit? As you suggest, we are carriers. We are carriers. So this is how I think of it, Rabbi. The awakened brain, this natural seat of perception through which we have the Olympian state, is hardwired to allow us, see, it's important. That's a synchronicity. Here's the point. The awakened brain allows us to see, feel, and know. It is not a belief. It is our innate capacity to perceive that we are loved, held, guided, and that we are never alone. Each of the dimensions of the awakened brain has a neural component. So the bonding network that held us just as we were children in our parents' arms is engaged, and we're aware that God or life itself holds us, that we are loved. The attention network moves from a top-down driving, got to have it, got to get it, to a bottom-up ventral attention network. And we have a much broader view of the world. And the right new answer we may have never before envisioned pops, guided. And the parietal puts in and out hard boundaries and says, you have your exciting life and I have mine. And still we share 
one common seat of human experience. We are distinct, but we are also one. We are loved, held, guided, and we are never alone. That is how we are built to see. The way we can sustain that in one another is that we not only have direct spiritual experience, we not only awaken, but that that should be shared. It can be shared in prayer, in minion. It can be shared in study of sacred text. And it is shared when we join into the symphony of life and we show up for one another as loving, guiding, holding, and never allowing anyone to be alone. We are players in this divine perception. And that is something Judaism has known a very long time. We are carriers of spiritual life. And we need to, through our love and actions to one another, love of neighbor, altruism, be the players in this loving, guiding symphony. I have so many things that I want to say. So let's start with this bottom up. Can you explain that a little better? I mean, you explain it well in the book. But this bottom up, because we're trained in school and in life, you know, stranger danger, so we don't say hello to people. Um, we're trained that if it if it's not logical, then throw it out, you know, and, and uh, no, you shouldn't feel that way. And, you know, all of these things that are kind of commonplace. And, and that to me is the top down that you're talking about. What is the bottom up? Right, and indeed we have been trained. We have very good top-down biceps and very atrophied bottom-up triceps. So it makes the lift of life more difficult. You couldn't be more right. The, in the awakened brain, I talk about the three foundational components to awakened awareness, awakened attention, awakened connection, and awakened heart. And you bring forward here awakened attention, which is our capacity to move from a preordained, I had it planned, I had it scheduled, strategy, tactic. You know, I have trained for six months for the SAT. I've trained for eight months for our great tennis tournament. I have trained and trained my kids, nonetheless, to then plan, strategize, and get out and through the red door. In fact, we've spent so much time planning to get up, out, and through the red door that we've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of sweat um, all in service to this plan. Here's the problem. Although we do need what I call achieving awareness, we do need to be tactical and strategic and plan and get our ducks in order. It is absolutely insufficient as a solo act to get through life. Awakened awareness says that achieving, let me put it this way, achieving awareness alone does not square with the deeper nature of life. Life is not controlled by us. There might be a tiny little thin layer of icing of control over a deep pound cake of flux and dynamism. Life is very much dynamic. So the first important realization in a time such as now, when despite our plans, the graduation or the wedding wasn't cold, when despite our plans, the institutions around us shut down, is that we don't control a great deal in our lives. Life is not controlled by us. We have elements of control, but we are not the grand conductor. I think if we move to a stance that we are actually much more like an airline pilot, that we don't make the weather or control the skies, but we navigate whatever weather, cloudy, stormy, sunny, 
might come, then we adopt a stance of relationship with life. We don't control life. We don't get what we want. We look less at life in terms of making a path and more in terms of discovering a path. That life is not a place where we tell it what to do, but life reveals a great number of surprises, often magnificent surprises. And we have the opportunity to say, what is life showing me now? That shift which can also be facilitated in prayer, in reflection, in meditation, is a shift from got to get out the yellow door, our dorsal top-down attention network, to wow, what a broad and colorful high-pixel world we live in. And I would have never noticed beating my head on the red door, but the yellow door over here is wide open. The right answer pops. And through the yellow door, I might discover something far more right Far more, far more magnificent, and I could have never even envisioned it looking back over my shoulder at yesterday's data and information. So a shift in awakened attention allows us to see a broad universe of possibilities where many people say the true, actually finer answer pops. And yes, I hadn't even imagined that was possible. Right. So in, in the book, you talk about your dark days uh, um, at Yale, that winter at Yale. And what I love is um, you say, I had to learn to give myself permission to trust my gut. How did you do that? How does one do that? Because I have this saying, I know it in my bones. And then I try and I try and, I guess, convince, explain, whatever, the unexplainable. Because what you knew, I mean, you have now proven what you knew, uh, what you know. But for most of us, there's not this matter that I can, I can point to. But it's this experience, this bottom-up experience that you're speaking about. And then... We either talk ourselves out of it or we get pushed out of it by other people. You know, my mother would say, oh, no, you shouldn't feel that way. That's not good thinking or, you know, you're wrong, things like that. Not maliciously, but just from her own training. and So you say here, I had to learn to give myself permission to trust my gut. How do we do that? In today's world where everything is... Uh, metrics and statistics and um, is it going to pay off or what's the return on the investment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do we learn to do that? But Rabbi, you know, the very first thing I found on my desk in kindergarten was a planner. <laughs> so as I shared, I thought I was going off to kindergarten with great anticipation of sharing mystical experiences. But I found a very smooth linoleum desk and on it a planner where the first thing really I was being taught was to control life, to organize life, to uh, focus on what was considered to be important in the classroom rather than explore what each day might have to reveal. That was a very deep lesson very deep lesson. And it only got, um, we might call it the silent curriculum. It got more and more pronounced and more and more unsaid. 
as I went through school. And I have great gratitude to my teachers. They cared. They gave me the best thing they knew. But the implicit training was that we can control life and that what is real is that which we tell you through mainstream education is to be valued. That which you can really know is that which you can point to. We believe in logic. We believe in empiricism through the five senses. But we don't even talk about intuition, direct revelation, or mystical experience. I mean, not a word. In fact, that is somewhat taboo, and it's certainly private. It is not the meat and potatoes of knowing, learning, and succeeding in school. This is to cut us off at our knees. It is to tell us that a broad realm of human awareness, of our many faculties of knowing, um, are not legitimate, are not to be spoken here. We don't do that here. Uh, if you do, that's private, just between you and your family. That's not center field getting down to brass tacks business here in school. That message is disintegrating. And we know in our work as healers that what we're trying to do is help people reintegrate. They come to us disintegrated. We're trained into disintegration. So that was quite a powerful lesson. I was very grateful for my spiritual mother who kept direct knowing intuition and mystical experience at the fore. I can only imagine what life would have felt like without her. Um, but and in that sense, my mother to me was more validating than every teacher K-12 college and graduate school because that was my mother. So as parents, I think we can complement the many messages by embodying spiritual voice as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a healer. What you say resonates. And in fact, one true message is more powerful than 50 that are misguided. Because we are innately spiritual beings, because we are hardwired with an awakened brain, we have with built in us, we are not a blank slate, no tabla rasa here. We have within us the process of selective spiritual socialization. We turn to the person who says that which is most true, most resonant. Rabbi, everything you said is how I'd always sensed life was really built. Rabbi, when you said there's an Olympian state, there's built in us a spiritual awareness, I always sensed that. Ding, ding, ding. It doesn't matter that 400 people in my life have suggested otherwise. We know what's true. So we can be that as healers and teachers, and we can be that as parents and grandparents and friends, because it only takes the clarity of your voice to open up the heart, to really ignite the spiritual brain of all those around you. Yeah, you know, you say that, and I'm, 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 um, I'm thinking that, um, I have a grandson, and he's twenty. Going to be twenty-two months old, and I've seen him twice when he when he was born, and then I went there for Father's Day because I haven't seen him because of COVID. And since Father's Day, whenever I call, he knows my voice. And during the at just some random time, my daughter will text me say he's talking about you, and. The other day she said to me, he started to use you as validating what he wanted to do, that you would say it was okay. And I looked at him and I thought to myself, how do you know your grandfather so well? <laughs> so there is this, I, I agree with you, okay? I, I'm 150% with you on it. And, you know, the whole 12-step program is based on this idea of powerlessness and dependence. 
dependence on the group, on the community, and and that we heal in community. And and so um, I, I'm, I mean, it's I, I have goosebumps listening to you and, and watching you. And and to get back to the book a little bit, okay, the Kendler paper seems to have, I guess, validated you. Because you were already working on this at the time, as I remember the book says. And then you saw that paper. So what was that experience for you, that validation? It it was very, very moving, Rabbi. I had experienced through the clinical work the spiritual as really the ultimate transformative source within us, that the sort of wellspring of spiritual reillumination, the Olympian state changed everything. And yet I couldn't find a peep in the science that defined our field, the science that said what's good practice, what the parameters of wellness are, what treatment can look like. There was not a single published article on spirituality and mental health in the first two decades, and only a few tiny little pieces on adulthood dealing only specifically with attendance. There was no deep look at spiritual life. And so a few scientists here and there had started debating how, as a scientific community, shall we define spirituality? Now, that is a question that's been asked for hundreds and thousands of years, and they weren't getting very far. (laughs) But then... Ken Kendler, a genetic epidemiologist and observant Jew, did something very interesting. He took what he was best known for, which was a twin study design, twins raised together, twins raised apart, and you factor out their degree of commonality as a shared function of shared genes and shared environment. And he'd taken the sort of hammer to hit the nail of many different questions, um, how heritable versus environmentally formed is depression, bipolar, temperament, IQ. Well, he took this design and he hit the nail of spiritual life. And for the first time ever, an empirical scientist identified that our capacity for spiritual awareness was one-third innate. This is in our birthright, two-thirds environmentally formed, which means, you know, temperament is half innate, half environmentally formed. IQ is 60% innate, 40% environmentally formed. It meant that just as we are physical beings, cognitive beings, emotional beings, we are inherently spiritual beings. And in that moment, I realized we had an entirely new footing to stand on, which was that spirituality could no longer be tossed away by mainstream psychologists as a defense or as a belief or as a band-aid. No, no, this is inherent. We are spiritual beings to our development, growth, health, wholeness, recovery. This is who we are. Game-changing. It was so powerful, I put his article in my purse. This is 1997, and I carried it around for years. I couldn't believe what a breakthrough. I wanted to see it on the front of the L.A. Times, the New York Times, you could have heard a pin drop. No one said a word about it. I thought the earth has just moved under our feet. Why is no one saying anything? And it dawned on me that, you know, these were smart people. These were good scientists. They didn't know what to make of it. They cared about patients. They didn't know how to apply it. And we had what turned out to be decades of work to bring this forward to understand more fully what it means to be inherently spiritual beings and how through treatment we realize our nature and how in young children and teens we can support and nurture natural spirituality so that they are 
more prepared and ready, more resilient. You know, a young adult with a strong spiritual core has a 60% decreased relative risk of major depression, 80% decreased relative risk of onset of addiction. They don't get there in the first place. So can we get ahead of this and help them? Well, that that's, I was just going to go to, to that, that, that um, the 35 to 75% less likely to experience clinical direct depression and 40 to 80% less likely for, for addiction, substance abuse or addiction. That, that is, it's beyond. So, right. Yes. I, I, I mean, it's just, it, it's something that I've known as a recovering person and as a rabbi and working in the field. So I guess the, the next thing is, is, is how, how do we, how do we teach parents? You're a parent. How old are your kids now? Rabbi, you're not going to believe this. There's little children in the book. I waited right. till they were old enough to ask their permission and they're now in high school and college. Great. Great. So, how, how, what is your, um, your parent guide to helping the kids develop that 30% and grow it so that they have, they're in the 75% or 80% less likely? And I would even say, Rabbi, that that is our foremost job as parents, that there's nothing we can offer our children that is more important than to develop their natural spiritual core. You know, I think of physical fitness for the physical core in my work with the U.S. Army. We have spiritual fitness for the spiritual core. It needs to be something we build like a muscle every single day. And that comes very naturally when as parents we do two things that are, you know, Judaism, I'm sure, as you know, as much to say, speak of these words on your, your coming and your going. Right? Well, transparency into our own spiritual life is enormously impactful for children. When we pray out loud, when we observe out loud, when we share as family, our spiritual reflections, you know, today was tough and I'm sorry, I was a little bit sour to you kids. I hope you'll forgive me. And in addition, Judaism says in many faith traditions that as I apologize to you now in our relationship, there's another bit of work at hand, which is I'd like to apologize to God and ask for renewal because today was a gift and I feel that I somehow squandered it. So will you join me in a prayer? Will you join me in a reflection? And the child learns that we are inherently able to take the most difficult moments, apologize to one another, fix it relationally, and then address it spiritually. Both need to happen. I see so many situations in which there's a therapy and it's relational, it's interpersonal, but it's still not solved. Or so many traumas where the recovery is strictly about reflection and cohesion, and but the problem's not solved because the spiritual reality is always there. It needs to go hand in hand in healing and renewal. If a child can learn that, fixing the little things, like mommy was sour today, then the child can learn to fix things both relationally and spiritually when things go wrong with family formation or divorce, when things go wrong with betrayals, or, you know, the things that happen in adulthood. The child is ready, even in college, to handle the bumps at the deepest level, the spiritual level, as well as the relational level. 
Now, why is that important? There has never been such fragility in young adults as today. Right now, the rate of death by suicide in high school surpasses the rate of death by auto accidents. We have never had more risk, more fragility, more concern, frankly, as a parent. So, you know, I, as a parent and a psychologist, if we're going to say buckle up, because the second greatest killer is auto accidents, then we have to acknowledge and get ahead of suicide. And some of that has to do with building the spiritual core every single day as our children grow up. Help them develop a spiritual response to loss, to disappointment, to depression. And when we do, that is ready to go for them. You know, when they get their heart broken, when they, for the first time, don't get an A, they get a C minus. When they don't get into their top five choices of college, that doesn't mean I'm bad. A spiritual response to suffering says, God has a plan for me. I will realize my calling in the way that's true to my path. A spiritual response says, that red door just slammed in my face, so now where is that yellow door that's going to open to a whole new horizon? That's a spiritual response. And when we live that way, day in and day out, we track people in the MRI and we show that they have built the muscle. They've built the bicep and the tricep for the heavy lift. They show cortical thickness processing power in the regions of the awakened brain, the parietal, occipital, and precuneus, regions of reflection, perception, and orientation. They're looking at life in a much truer, deeper way. They have a choice to always bring forward a spiritual response to suffering. That is the seed of resilience. That is the greatest protective factor we know against addiction, depression, and even suicide. In a study of 2,000 tragically completed suicides and 5,000 matched controls for diagnosis and demographics, Wu and colleagues found there was an 82% decreased relative risk. I'm four-fifths less likely to take my life if I have a strong spirituality that is shared, like you have taught so many people, Rabbi, I've been to your synagogue, I've been to your treatment center, a strong spirituality that is shared, that is buoyancy. Then we know that we are loved, guided, held, and that we are never alone. Wow. There's so much of so. I, I I guess there's a couple of things that I, I want to go into from that. I had some other things that I want to talk about, but um, this. So how do you deal spiritually? Okay, I mean, when you experience betrayal, and it is so deep. Um, there's the resilience, which means I keep going. There's the lack of depression. How, how do you deal with the sadness? The sadness of being betrayed, whether it's by a parent, mm -hmm. by a lover, by a, a, um, a boss, whomever, friend, etc. So spiritually, I know that I know God has a plan for me. I'm going through a few things myself. I know God has a plan. And I know that I have to release the other stuff. The betrayal, that sadness, that loss. How does spirituality help with that? 
So, Rabbi, I'll tell you two things I've seen that are very helpful, and I'll, and I'll, because you were so open-handed, I'll share. I have two endured betrayals, and this is what I found and how it squares with the science. The first is, can I love this person whether or not he or she loves me? Can I be a being of love? Can I, it doesn't mean I expose myself to more mistreatment. It doesn't mean that what they did was okay, but as the realization of my fullest nature, as my spiritual opportunity as a soul on earth. Can I love this person? Can I reignite? Can I be a beacon of love in my heart, even in the face of their limitations? Because what is betrayal if not a limitation in the other person's realization of their nature for that moment? So can I love them? Even if love is not a tit for tat, um, you know, that's where, you know, I think the ketubah doesn't, the ketubah makes it a contract. I call it a calling. So I would say that, you know, is it my call? Can I love this person beyond how they treat me? Now, it doesn't mean I stick around for abuse. It means, can I love them still? The second thing is that by being betrayed, by suffering, by being so disappointed, I realized I was brought into deep connection with all of humanity who has shared the same. You know, I wasn't that all that girl or that all that boy who had, you know, the shiny this or the super that. I had this felt love and connection with all the people. And some of them betrayed a lot. I mean, some people have had their village burned down and some people have had their family. I mean, there's been horrible betrayals. I mean, um, and some people have encountered betrayals as we're describing by a boss or a partner or a child. But, but this is um, such a deep seat of connection. It's, it's what I call in the book an awakened connection, where we feel the oneness that, that is the deepest shared human experience, the common human heart. It's sort of, I call it the Oprah effect, right? That she was open about her pain, and the whole world loved her because she was so right. open. And she owned her pain, and the whole world was able to own theirs. Um, it's more than vulnerability. It's saying that, you know, I'm open for business in the business of life. I love that. Thank you. So the, the synchronicity, the idea that two mechanic, mechanics, mechanics, whatever that word is, two separate events are actually one at the level of consciousness and there's no difference between yes. inner and outer life. So how do yes. you help, how do you, how do you train your students in, in this method or mode of, of um, treatment at the spirituality? As you say Institute? Thank you, Rabbi. And in fact, at the Spirituality of Mind Body Institute, we do train students into synchronicity awareness, awareness of the deeper flow in life. Very often people, you know, when I started teaching about synchronicity 20 plus years ago, I'd say who in the room to a classroom of graduate students has had a synchronicity and maybe a third would raise their hand. Today, when I say that at the Spirituality and Mind-Body Institute, I'd say nearly everybody raises their hand. So synchronicity has become more a part of our shared collective awareness. It's part of our culture now. 
And what is synchronicity? As you say so beautifully, it's when two seemingly unrelated events, two mechanistically unrelated events, actually in our inner wisdom, are seen to have a deeper common ground at the level of consciousness or source in their origin. I'll give a few examples that I think many people may resonate with in their own life. So you're thinking about your friend. You haven't seen him in 15 years. You're thinking about how you and Charlie used to laugh at the coffee shop. You know, Charlie was the funniest guy you knew in your 20s and 30s. You get home and the, you know, first thing you see on your phone, you get off the subway, you look at your phone, is the Charlie's call, of course. That's one we've all had, right? I was just thinking about you and wow, on the subway, I couldn't get a cell phone signal. You called. You reached me, <laughs> not through the right. cell, through a more foundational form of wavelength. So that is that is a deep, that's not a coincidence. That would be far too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance. That is not well explained. The explanatory power of a random universe isn't very good because those events are much too unlikely. Instead, what makes much more sense is to infer there is a deeper common unity, that you're actually looking at one event expressed in two different ways. That right as he called on the phone, you had an inner awareness of Charlie. Or um, sometimes there are two physical events, that you heard a song that you love so much, and then the next thing you know, the person who first introduced you to that song, um, you see at school, right? So you, there's the sense of two outer events, an inner or an outer event. The bottom line is that from a consciousness-based view of reality, there's no difference between inner and outer. That the symbolism of our inner life and the symbolism live action in our outer life are both expressions of a deep, common spiritual reality of one consciousness event. So, oh, I love it. I love it. There's so much. I mean, I'm exploding here. Um, so here's a question I have about... Um, Alana, I think it was, the young woman um, whose yes. father was Horatio. Yes. What gave you the inner strength to go against the training and the empirical methods and uh, uh, evidence-based criteria, etc., to be able to help her with her spiritual growth. Alana was a 13-year-old girl who came seeking help all by herself. So normally in, I was at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital on the ninth floor, you would see a 13-year-old accompanied by his or her grandma or a parent or perhaps, you know, in a group with other young people brought together. But here was this little girl sitting by herself in this hunched sort of duck and cover position. And I thought, how on earth did she get here? And when I heard her story, it turned out that her greatest love, her father, with whom she lived, just adored her. He was her son, her moon, her stars, was tending his store on the corner of Upper Manhattan, a small grocery store. And one night, two fellows came in who he knew, mugged him, and killed him. And it ended her world as she knew it. She was deeply bereft and felt terribly alone, isolated. She then had to go live with her mother and grandmother two blocks away 
who themselves as survivors of terrible abuse yet to receive treatment were very walled off. And she felt incredibly this chilly isolation. She barricaded herself in the room. And because of her grandma and mother's history, she'd say, can I go to the school dance? Can I sit on the stoop and talk to my friends? Can I go to the corner, to the park? And it was no, 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 it's not safe. Again, well-intentioned grandma, but through her trauma, unable to let her daughter meet friends, meet boys, as she got interested in being a young woman. So Alana started bringing in big posters, huge pieces of cardboard, to which she'd stuck pictures of boys in rock groups. She'd cut them out of popular magazines. And at that point, you know, we saw the Jonas Brothers. And, you know, what do you think, Dr. Miller, he's like? Do you think he's kind, pointing at the Jonas Brothers? You know, would you think that they'd be respectful, you know, trying to understand dating and young men through the lens of her collage? Well, this went on and on for months as I did a standard treatment, as I'd been trained in this child and adolescent clinic. And the treatments of the time were cognitive and relational. And I'd say over months, we moved together from a one to 10 scale, from her coming in at a one or a two, to maybe a five, five and a half, six at best. But after months, she was stagnant. There was a pain in her heart. She was shut down and she was still walled off to the world. But then one day, Rabbi, she came in as if someone had sent another girl. She was skipping. She was childlike. She was joyous. Dr. Miller, you're not going to believe this. Dr. Miller, Dr. Miller, come here, come in, sit down, tell me what. Well, my grandma's nephew's brother and his girlfriend, well, they escorted me. They chaperoned so that I could go to the dance. And there I met a boy, her first boy she'd met. And you're not going to believe this. He was so polite. He was so kind. And we talked for 20 minutes. And here's the best part. Guess what his name was? And I said, well, what was his name? Well, his name was Horatio, her father's name. Don't you see? And I said, tell me. She said, my father sent him. My father is looking out after me. And she looked illuminated. She looked Olympian. She looked whole. She was no longer alone. And her deep awareness through her awakened brain, through her deep knowing, she knew her father walked with her. That day, she was a 10. And in the weeks that followed, she would waver 8, 10, 9, 8, but never again below an 8. She had rejoined the living. And it's because she was never again alone. If I had treated that as some remote, you know, variable reflecting her background or diversity or her, I would have taken all the air and life out of it. That was a truth. That was a universal foundational truth in living. And instead I, in honor of her and the sacred reality, joined both feet in. And I said, wow, wow, what a blessing. Yes, your father walks with you. That's a spiritually, well, I'll put it this way. At a moment like that, I'm not interested in pleasing the crowd. I'm interested in honoring the sanctity of her path and her time here on earth. Right. And what allowed you within you to do that? Because you went against all of psychology at that time. 
I knew. I didn't believe. I didn't. I wasn't trained to think. I knew that she spoke the truth. Now, how did I know she spoke the truth? Well, I'll tell you a story. When I was a little girl, uh, I shared with you my mother was really a plain clothes shaman, you know, an observant Jew who lived life in a mystical way. And my father was a very gentle, gracious, a little bit um, inward academic, skeptical, but as every artist, he lived in the symbolic reality. So he actually, like every, my father was a theater director, like every person in narrative or musical or any form of art, right? They, the creative process is a spiritually receptive one. So he was present using his awakened brain. The creative process is an awakened process. So I was about nine, Rabbi, and I will say that it was a very painful time in my house. My grandmother had just died, my father's mother, within 24 hours. So, you know, my father, who normally was completely composed, looked confused. Uh, he was the youngest child. He, he looked confused. He looked without. He looked pained. We all went to bed, and at four, when I always woke up, I came downstairs to find my father sitting, very moving to this day, sitting on the carpet, you know, by the living room couch, alone, sort of thinking. I said, Dad. He said, I had a dream. He's very transparent, very open-handed. He said, I had a dream that woke me up. I had a dream from which I woke. Grandma Ellie, his mother, was in my dream. And whereas Grandma Ellie loved to dress up with beautiful clothes and jewelry, he said, in my dream, she wore a very plain, everyday gray suit that I remember her wearing very often as a child. And Grandma and I were walking down Grand Avenue in Des Moines, Iowa, where my father had grown up, along the street where they'd walked together so many times. And it felt so real to him. And as he pondered it, he hadn't figured out what this meant yet. It was very raw. And he looked at me and he says, so kind of grasping, I take this to mean that Grandma will always walk with me, that she had always been my mother. She will always be my mother. And I will never be alone. It was effectively the same experience that Ileana had 25 years later in my life. How did I know her father was real? Because my, my own father had told me that the spirit of his mother was real. Now, Rabbi, I have done, I don't know, 100 studies on spiritual awareness, a good lion's share of which includes awareness of ancestors, the cross-cultural universal awareness of ancestors in, our, in their spirit. I know our ancestors walk with us, not from the stack of empirical papers, but because my father told me so. As a child, when my pure spiritual awareness was at the fore, open, curious, ready to learn. What a gift. What a gift. That's so what beautiful. That is so beautiful. And this is the gift we all have as parents. My father was not the most observant in our family. This is a gift we all have to open and be transparent and share with our children our deepest moments. When I think of my father, I go to that day 
as a nine-year-old sitting on the living room carpet. That is the depth of the register of our relationship. That is the strength of our bond. He gave me the most real, true moment in his life. When we do that with our kids, that's what they think life's about. And that's who we are to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you're bringing me up so much because my father died when I was 14. And um, hmm. I have made him alive for my daughter because he walks with me every day. Every day I, I think about my father. It's 50, almost 56 years. There's not a day that I don't think about him. There's not a day that uh, in times of trouble I go to my grandfather who always used to say, and I hear his voice, there must be a reason. And and um, so making that come alive is, is I think you're right. I, I know you're right. It's, it's so crucial. And then passing that on to our children and, and, and grandchildren is, is, I think, the greatest gift we can do. So I want to... Rabbi, uh, what a beautiful I, gift. What a beautiful gift to keep your father alive and hear his living true presence and share that. Oh, yeah. And, and my brother... And I, See, there's nothing greater. There's nothing greater. Right. What else could we possibly give? Right. And, and my brother and I, over the years, have whenever ever either one of us has been distressed or anything, we'll call up and say, okay, what would Dad say? Just to oh. hear the wisdom again. What would Grandpa say? Both of our grandfathers, you know, that, that wisdom. And, and because we have it, we have to give it out to our kids and our grandkids. And, and so it's... So it then just, it starts to feel from here, like, and what, what is he saying? What does Dad say right now? I feel like through right. you, he says it. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I just... Um, it, it's... It's just very present, this whole conversation today, in so many different reasons. So I wanted to, um, I know too. we don't have much, do you have much more time? Oh, I have another 10, 10, 12 okay. minutes. So in 10, 12 minutes, I would like you to talk about awakened attention, awakened connection, and awakened heart. The truth is I'm only halfway done with the book because I'm reading it. And I turn the page, and for me, what you're writing is similar to what Rabbi, the way Rabbi Heschel writes, which is, it seems ah. very simple when I'm reading it, you know. And then I turn the page, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, let me, I, I'm going back and forth and back and forth because it's so rich. Any, everybody should be buying this book. Harriet made it mandatory for all the clinicians at Beit Shuba to buy it. I'm so and grateful that, and so honored, Rabbi, to be part of it, your program. is a tremendous gift. Thank you. Oh, this is this is so powerful and so great. I've I've I sent it to a treatment center in in uh, in Atlanta and in uh, New York. I mean, I, I'm really um, this, this is this is groundbreaking in in. Uh, I guess what I wanted to say to you is. Reading it, I felt, I feel known. I feel unalone. And and reading this book, and always with you, whenever I'm with you, I have this feeling of being held. But this book is, it, I'm telling you, it's, it's got that kind of an impact on me. And you know how much I, I love Rabbi Asher. So 
Sure. I'm deeply moved by that, Rabbi. Thank you. What a deep, I'm deeply moved. Thank you. Thank you. So awakened attention, connection, and heart. The principle and in, in what can we do to grow that? Well, the awakened brain has three deep dreams coming together, right? And one is, as we shared a bit about awakened attention, the ability to not just be driven by that which we want, what I call achieving awareness, that which we thought based on yesterday's agenda and yesterday's information was supposed to be our tomorrow, but rather be fresh, be present, and see what life shows me now. What is life showing me now? Awakened attention takes us from the top-down dorsal to the bottom-up ventral attention network, and suddenly we see surprising possibilities that are more fascinating, more loving, more exciting than we knew were possible, as well as difficulties we didn't anticipate that yield to new understanding. But we see life anew. Awakened connection is our ability to feel a deep common bond or oneness with people on the other side of the world. I was once on my honeymoon with my husband in Beijing, 1991, when everybody was still on bicycles. And we step outside the train station, we're holding, no cell phones, holding a map in Chinese, and we don't know our next move. I mean, we don't know if we're going to get a train or a bus or where there's a hotel. And sort of puzzling over this map, we eventually look up, and there's 20 people standing in a circle around us in the most gracious, quiet way, saying, we're here to help. Okay. I didn't speak their language. They didn't speak mine. We didn't particularly look like identical twins. And there was such a deep connection and awareness of helping, showing up for one another, being what I call in the book, trail angels on this road of life, an awakened connection that we are deeply one. And then the awakened heart Um, here, just as we were children held in the arms of our parents or grandparents and felt loved and held, we, through the bonding network being engaged, are aware that we are loved and held by God, loved and held by life itself. There's something built into the fabric of daily existence, reality, that is loving and holding. And so together, we see, feel, and know that we are loved, held, guided, and that we are never alone. This is how we are wired to be able to perceive this true deeper level in life. This is who we are. And we can show up and be players like those lovely 20 people at the Beijing train station showed up for my husband and I, we can be players in the sacred symphony. Well, I want you to know that you're a player in the, in my sacred symphony and of living. And you and in mine, Rabbi. And you are a player in all of ours. I cannot thank you enough for this book. I can't wait for the next time we get together because everything you said is exploding in my in my being, not in my head, but I, I'm feeling it all throughout me. And and um, you know, God blessed us. We know that we're blessed because you're here. And that I know. I know the blessing that you are. And and you and this book and your work and your training of people reminds all of us that God has not forsaken us. And, and that we can 
we can reach this awakened brain and we can cultivate it. Together. Thank you. I'm very honored, very, very moved and honored. And thank you for your extraordinary work. You are an awakened actor. You know how to guide people into awakened awareness. And I thank Thank you you. for the thousands of people whose lives you've transformed. Thank you. And and for the thousands that you have, I thank you. And God bless. Shana Tobad should be a good year and and, and easy fast, okay? God bless. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye now.